Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Oh, yeah. 
Moods and Modes, episode 18. This is Alex, and this is some fun music to kick things off with. I almost feel like a late night DJ. So what is this cool music we are hearing? This is Snarky Puppy. They have nearly a dozen albums out, more than a dozen if you count live albums. And considering that they're primarily a jazz instrumental group with a heavy dose of funk, rock, and world music, they've caught on in a way once unthinkable for our current time period. They have amassed an audience that is massive. They have played at Royal Albert Hall. They have earned four Grammy Awards and broken a lot of ground and a lot of rules along the way. Now, Snarky Puppy is not really thought of as a band as much as a collective ensemble that began with 10 players, but over the past 15 years has contained no fewer than 40 musicians passing in and out in various lineups. Now, since its inception and throughout all the variation, there has been one common thread running through every incarnation of Snarky Puppy. That common thread is a person. He is their founder. He is their director. He is their main composer. He is their bass player, playing those funky bass lines, the ones that kicked off this episode. And he is our guest today. I am so thrilled to welcome Michael League to Moods and Modes. Now, this is our second episode in a row with a great bass player. It is also our second episode, period, with a bass player. I mentioned on the previous episode with the great fretless bass player, Percy Jones, well known for his work with Brian Eno and Brand X, that we would be making up for lost time with the bass. And I think it's safe to say that with Michael League as our guest today, I did not disappoint and I am a man of my word. However, some of you bass players may be getting a little too excited right now, thinking, ooh, you guys are going to talk bass. You're going to talk Jocko, Stanley Clark, bass solos. Well, not exactly. You see, Michael League is a very unique musician. Yes, that is Michael League as well. That's him singing. That's him playing ethnic percussion. That's him playing keyboards. That's him playing everything. He plays everything on every track on his new album that just came out called So Many Me. And yes, it is a pop record. And it sounds nothing like the other stuff he is associated with. And it's beautiful music too, just very different. And you have to admire that he makes artistic choices with minimal consideration of expectations. Did I mention he has other projects as well? Bocante, a wonderful world music group with vocals. Fork, the band that they're going to be guests on the show. And I participated in a recent remix of. He's a founding member of Fork. Did I mention he produces other artists? The wonderful singer Becca Stevens, just one example. David Crosby, the legend. So spanning multiple genres, multiple ages. Did I mention he's only 37 years old? (laughs) So inspiring. And much like our guest a couple weeks ago, Reza Bazi, 
He's somebody with a very chill demeanor, present, focused, not stressed at all, and fun to hang out with. Somebody you might not guess is engaged in multiple works of art that are highly advanced and at a level of productivity that is staggering. And there are other Michael League spawned projects that I haven't even mentioned yet. Some of those will come up in conversation. They include the record label Ground Up Records, named after the Snarky Puppy album from 2012, Ground Up. And Ground Up Records not only functions as a home for Snarky Puppy and all Michael's projects, but it's also an incubator to a wide variety of artists deserving of greater recognition, both veterans and up-and-comers. Now, I want to bring in Michael, but it's going to be a few more minutes. I'll explain why in a moment. So by now, you probably get the sense that Michael is a very unique artist, which is true, and not just a bass player, a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist producer, whose new album will certainly do more to solidify that reputation. But not only that, festival promoter, artistic coordinator, sort of an angel investor for deserving music. We talk about all of this, and you will hear from Michael shortly. But as mentioned, there's going to be a few more minutes of just me, and let me explain why. First, the good news. The interview is in very good quality. It's always ideal when we have a guest, if it's convenient for them to record themselves digitally and send over the files. That's not always the case, but that was the case with Michael, who is speaking from his home studio in Spain. So the bad news is the first few minutes of the conversation didn't record on his end. I understand. I get it. I've done the same thing plenty of times. And it shouldn't matter because we have more than enough conversation. We spoke for more than an hour. But those first few minutes were really good. And I don't want to lose that content. I think you'll agree when you hear it. It's worth salvaging. So I tried raising his voice, which was barely coming through my voice track, using some audio tools. It didn't work. You could hear me sipping water. At one point, the UPS guy showed up and rang my buzzer. (laughs) So what I'm going to do is read that portion of the conversation, and then we will resume with the proper interview in which you hear both our voices. So in the beginning, we were getting the sounds adjusted. There was a slight echo on his end. So I asked him, can you still hear an echo? To which he said, yes, that's okay. In general in life, I prefer to hear less of me. We both laughed. And I said, that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Some of the snarky puppy music at times reminds me of the presence of Ry Cooter with Buena Vista Social Club. He's there, but he's not making it about him. It's unimaginable without him, but it's more about all the musicians. And I feel like with some of Snarky's music, the bass is there, but it's not like, hey, look at the bass. It's all about the bass. And we both crack up. So he says, I think a while ago, and I mean when I first went to college, the idea of the athletic musician disappeared for me. So I want to make that clear. Sorry. I grew up in a small town in Northern Virginia. There weren't a lot of people playing. So the fact that I was able to improvise over something more than a blues was kind of exceptional among my high schoolers or whatever. And then I went to University of North Texas. And this is me interjecting. For those of you who don't know, The University of North Texas in Denton, outside of Dallas, is considered to have one of the best music departments, especially as far as jazz is concerned, in the entire United States. Now, I realize that when you think of Texas, jazz might not be the first genre that comes to mind. However, UNT is not the only example. There's actually a high school in Houston 
with a music program that produced such noteworthy musicians as keyboardist Robert Glasper, guitarist Mike Marino, and many others. So when it comes to jazz, I think it's safe to say, don't mess with Texas. Here's Michael again. Quote, I was by far the least developed bass player in the department. It was a real slap in the face to me, but in a good way. I think a lot of my ideas about music changed. Not that I really thought about myself as the type who'd stand on stage and show everybody what I can do, but any risk of that happening was killed when I arrived there because I was just at the bottom of the barrel, unquote. Then I follow up with, that's such an interesting way to put it, the athletic way of playing. And Mike says, yeah, that happens a lot with jazz and especially with fusion. For that reason, I've never called Snarky Puppy a fusion band because of the association, you know, between that word and people playing in a way that's more about, um, and there is a pause. So I jump in and say, dexterity and technique, to which he says, quote, dexterity in music. That's a great way to put it. And I think from the beginning of Snarky Puppy, which began when I was in college, I was always thinking about, well, what's going to make the music sound good? Maybe the bass doesn't play, or maybe it just plays like a bass instead of a bass superhero. Unquote. So we're almost done with this portion. I think it should be clear why I wanted to salvage this by reading it out loud. What a great point. You know, in these music programs, everyone's trying to be the next musical superhero. And in the case of the bass, the next Jocko or Stanley Clark or Victor Wooten. And don't even get me started about guitar players who are a little too focused on being a quote-unquote superhero and not focused enough on trying to create meaningful music. Now here's Michael's final comment from these first few minutes that I am reading before we get to the actual conversation. And I'll just preface it by pointing out that the person he's referring to here, Larry Graham, is considered the father of funk bass with an astounding technique, who's most known for his work in the 60s with Sly and the Family Stone, later hired by Prince, even though Prince is a perfectly capable bass player, and more recently by Drake. Here's Michael. Quote, look, I'm a huge Larry Graham fan, and I love the way he plays, but that's not the kind of bass player I am. I'm not even physically capable of playing like those guys. So I think for me, ever since then, it's always been about composition, because that's where I think I felt, in general, that I would have the strongest voice, unquote. Isn't that a great quote? You can see why I didn't want to lose this dialogue, even if I had to read it. And I think it's going pretty well so far. Do we even need Michael? <laughs> Knowing him, he would say, you got this, man. I'm just going to hang back and listen. <laughs> we do need Michael. We've got Michael. We're going to hear lots of Michael right after we hear a little bit more of Snarky Puppy, and then we'll bring him in on the other side. I think depending on what genre you're in, there's maybe a little more of a temptation or an expectation to play in a certain kind of way that can be more athletic, you know, or more virtuosic. Mm -hmm. But I don't 
think of Snarky Puppy as that kind of band, like a fusion band. I think of us really more like a pop band that has a lot of improvisation and maybe a little more ambitious in their compositional techniques than a normal pop artist. Yeah. But it's really just like a pop band with no singer. We improvise a bunch. What we're channeling when we play live is more Motown and mm -hmm. Headhunters than it is Mahavishnu Orchestra or stuff like that, you know? Well, it seems like it goes so many places. And I want, I know uh, we're, I want to talk about your new disc as well, but oh, whatever, whatever, but we'll get to that. I like that. You know, there are songs on there. You might not guess it's the same artist. Hmm. Some of the more recent stuff. It's very global. I can hear the global sure. influence. There's like a hip hop groove that kicks off sure. one track. Some of it's like full on rock. Yeah, we do have rules, though. We have rock rules. Yeah, how does that go? <laughs> tell, no, tell me about the rock. No power chords <laughs> ever allowed. And it's not <laughs> something that I set out from the yeah. beginning saying that, but it's just any time it happens on a guitar, I get like an allergic reaction. You know, there's something is, about it that doesn't fit. This is great to hear. We need to hear this because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes those guitars, we don't get told this stuff. You know? <laughs> oh, I, I, unfortunately, the guitar players are used to being told things by everyone <laughs> in the band, <laughs> you know, not just me. Um, I could imagine. But no, no, it's not that I don't love power chords on a guitar. I love it. Just in Snarky Puppy, it never fits. Mm -hmm. There's always something about it that feels like separate. Yeah. And from playing together for like 16 years now, there's this kind of unwritten code mm -hmm. of what works and what doesn't work and it's very very interesting did you always envision it like that like at one time could you have envisioned it being more like uh i don't know weather report where there's like a lineup that changes a little bit but the main people are always there or like return to forever chick is there right. no matter what but the lineup changes but your thing it's almost more it's such a large collective of people and you're sort of like what Dave Grohl is to the Foo Fighters or Trent Reznor is to Nine Inch Nails, even though those are right. <laughs> strange comparisons. No, not at all. Yeah. I think we're coming actually more from both of those bands than yeah. we are from a lot of the bands that people compare us to. Oh, interesting. You know. Yeah, like Return to Forever. Like, I don't really see almost any similarity between us and that band in terms of, like, the way that we approach playing. Mm-hmm. On stage, even though I think Return to Forever is awesome. If you saw a rehearsal of us, mm -hmm. you would probably draw more similarities to a pop band or Nine Inch Nails or Soundgarden or so something that, yeah. I mean, also, I'm a white right. suburban American who grew up in the 90s. It's like Soundgarden is my music. Yeah, that's your jam. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think it's impossible to separate that from when I'm producing a record for someone from Cuba or playing Black American music or whatever. That thing is always there, yeah. that way of thinking about how to organize songs, how to build contours, tightness and looseness, and all those kind of concepts are maybe more tied to artists that are less associated with us. And did you always envision being a producer, or is this something that sort of came along and just sort of happened out of necessity because you needed a producer? Oh, well, I'll produce. I guess the cheapest person to hire is yourself. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> so when Snarky Bubby did its first gig, it was like, or when Snarky Bubby did its first record, uh -huh. the question, do we hire a producer, didn't even come out of anybody's mouth because we had no money, you know? Yeah. 
the band didn't even get paid to make the record, you know? So I sat next to the engineer when I was done playing and asked a bunch of questions. And I think I just approached and still approach music production the same way that I approached band leading mm -hmm. or musical direction. I just thought of it as an extension of that just recorded in a studio, you know? And now, of course, I know about mic choices and preamps and, you know, recording techniques and stuff that I didn't know about at the time. But I don't know. I think if you got to choose between a producer that knows about music but doesn't know about gear mm -hmm. and a producer who knows about gear but doesn't know about music, I think you go with the first one. The music. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, Rick Rubin doesn't touch a board. I don't know if that's Surprise still the case. Yeah. It's just all verbal direction. Yeah. A lot of it's – a lot of it. I mean, 95% of it's psychology, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about figuring out how to get the musicians in the room to build the thing, to build the structure, to achieve the goal and to achieve the desired emotion. And sometimes that yeah. happens by pissing people off. Some producers do that. You know, they intentionally mm -hmm. piss people off to get them to play a certain way or make them feel really comfortable or whatever, whatever gets it done. I've witnessed that in the studio. Yeah. With your groups, have you worked with someone that you had a horrible experience with and then the end music sounds awesome and... <laughs> um, luckily it, it hasn't happened that much with me, but I have seen it happen. Yeah. Well, like my main band, the band Testament, yeah, I've, of course, seen, yeah. I've seen the other guitarist who's the founder of the band completely annoy the drummer. <laughs> and he's like, I'm telling you, he's going to play better. I'm telling you. And finally, you know, he got, after several takes that he thought was great. He couldn't believe right. he was being asked to do it again. He's like, ah, yeah. guy making me do it. And I, I had to admit, it actually sounded pretty good. Then you get the tape. And then um, I did some shows. I did this review of the music of Jim Steinman, Meatloaf, Bonnie yeah, Tyler, yeah. songwriter. And she was at some of the shows. And this was short-lived project. It was going to be like a musical type. We basically workshopped it. But seeing him in action, I mean, he's known for torturing singers. I mean, that's the actual. And you can hear it on the records. I mean, mm. in fact, Bonnie Tyler would told us about the, the recording of Total Eclipse of the Heart. And she's reaching for notes that she doesn't right. know. She She's since learned how to get those notes, but she did not know she had them. And it was apparently was a very stressful experience, but it had good results. Yeah, there's so many different techniques. I've never gone for that technique. I think maybe I can't very picture rarely. You, you seem like a real uh, chill dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like anybody, I guess I get stressed in certain moments, but in general, I try to put the focus on, you know, making musicians feel comfortable and, you know, making them feel that they're in a space in which they can stretch and try new things so that they're not self-conscious. But also everybody has a different, path to disarmament mm -hmm. you know oh, you, yeah. you have good to, choice you of have words to, yeah you have to talk to one musician one way to get the desired result and then you have to talk to another musician in a completely different way to get the exact same result you know and harry shearer a great actor and musician and legendary this is spinal bass, legendary spinal bass player tab. also yeah, a voice of the simpsons if i'm not wrong. yes most of the characters yeah incredible you know harry is yeah totally prolific and works in so many different zones. And he told me once, yeah, you know, I've got 40 different people in my organization or whatever. And I speak 40 different languages with oh, them, wow. you know, that with each person, 
you talk to them in a certain kind of way and treat them in a certain kind of way to make them feel the way that they need to feel to get the job done in the best way possible. So I think just every time I produced a record, I made a bunch of mistakes and tried to never make those exact mistakes a second time, <laughs> which I wasn't always successful in, but I think that's the way to do it, right? You just like jump into the ring and take some hits and try to not take them more than once. Yeah, it's got, you've gotten so good at it. I really like the Becca Stevens yeah. stuff. And Jamie sent me some of the unreleased stuff, the, oh, uh, cool. the Secret Trio. Yeah, really interesting record, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to break in here for a moment just to elaborate on what we're discussing. The Secret Trio consists of three incredible world music artists, primarily Oud, Clarinet, and Kanun, the fantastic Turkish instrument. But they play other instruments as well. And the Kanun player is Tamer Pinerbasi, who was part of the Planetary Coalition album that I did on a couple songs. And I knew from the New York Gypsy All-Stars. And this was like a spinoff project with Ismail Luminovsky, the clarinet player of the New York Gypsy All-Stars. And they have several albums out as a trio. The album we're speaking about is with Becca Stevens. And if you're not familiar with Becca Stevens, you should research her. She has a jazz vocal sophistication, is a trained jazz singer, but she also has this quality that can appeal to fans of the Laurel Canyon artists like Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and some very serious world music knowledge as well. So putting her with the secret trio is a really cool and unique combination. Now, Michael was a part of this album, not just as a producer, but as a player. I can recognize his acoustic guitar style and his vocals when they come, but he's not playing all the time. And we talk a little bit about this. And you may have heard the name Jamie mentioned. Jamie is the rep from Ground Up Records and my new buddy. She's very cool and has the same purpose and passion about the music that all the artists do, which is so refreshing. So Jamie had sent me several recordings of upcoming releases on Ground Up Records, one of them being Becca Stevens and The Secret Trio. That's the title of the album, as well as the artist. And I found a song that I wanted to share for you. And then I remembered that this album is not out yet. It doesn't come out till September. However, I double-checked just now on iTunes, and there is one song out. So it's the single, and it's the same song I picked. I must have an ear for this stuff. <laughs> so let's hear the first single from Becca Stevens and the Secret Trio. It begins with Tomer playing Kanoon, and it's produced by Michael, who we will speak to on the other side. The song is called The Eye. Open one eye only The horizon isn't closed eye 
idea is that there's this trio and there's Becca. And then in certain moments I'm singing behind her, in certain moments I'm playing Moog bass or, or acoustic guitar or any number of instruments that everyone in that group could also play. Right. You know? Subtle. And also the objective for that group is to get them touring. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not around to tour, right. they I don't want to hold them back. Yeah. yeah, so do we just left my name off, but just on as a producer. Really? Yeah. So it's such cool stuff. Oh, I'm glad you dig it. Yeah. yeah. I'm fascinated by those kind of unlikely combinations. You know, there's a Macedonian guy playing clarinet, a Turkish guy playing kanun, a guy from Jersey of Armenian Incredible. descent playing oud, and then Becca from North Carolina playing all this crazy stuff. I love singing. the combination. And I actually know Tomer Pinderbasi. Oh, yeah, really? When I saw the, the secret trio i recognize tomer and i'm like oh yeah this makes such great he's sense a, he's a freak he's a yeah. total freak. oh it's unbelievable i've always loved that instrument and i always thought mm. this is so exciting but not enough western listeners know about this yeah not at all yeah and i think that's a you know the word collaboration is now used so often whereas like 10 years ago 15 years ago it wasn't as hyped or whatever you know and so now it's like everything is always about collaborating because also the age of social media, you want to combine followers, mm-hmm. you know, you want to draw people over from someone else's thing to your thing, whatever. And I think that's beautiful that collaboration is being encouraged, but I also think it gets abused in a lot of ways. And I think that there's a very deep and subtle art to crossing musical borders in a tasteful and cohesive way. As you know, doing that planetary coalition thing, that's like, you can just say, yeah, music has no borders and let's bring the world together and let's get a sitar player with a anum player with a koto player. And, mm-hmm. and oh, isn't music beautiful? But it's like... It needs to work, though. It, it needs to work. work. You have to hold yourself to the same set of standards that you would hold yourself in a power trio. That's like, is this drummer locking in with this bass player in the right way? Exactly. Does this guitar player know how to play in this context as the only guitar player? Like Jimi Hendrix did, but like a lot of guitar players, some who have played in like the Red Hot Chili Peppers or groups like that maybe didn't Mm -hmm. know how to do, you know, because that's an art playing guitar in a power trio. Right, right. And probably playing sitar with a koto is also an art. I think it's about making sure that you hold yourself to the same standards of music, regardless of the combination. What I love about that trio is that they're so flexible and adaptable and versatile. It's like you can give them a Soundgarden tune or giant steps and Uh they'll crush it. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Referencing Coltrane and Soundgarden. Now, that's my kind of musician. And Michael League is so prolific. He has so much music, and I want to share as much of it as possible. So unlike other episodes where I provide a lot of the background music, all the music that is heard in this episode, other than the intro and outro, is either by Michael or a Michael League-related project. And this brings us to the half-hour point. That went by fast, didn't it? This is the time where, as required by international law in accordance with a joint treaty between the United Nations and The Hague, we take a short break for housekeeping. 
Now, I want to keep this brief. We have so much more great conversation with Michael to get to. I'm sure we're going to go over an hour. But first, I need to issue a retraction. This is a first for Moods and Modes. And a few astute listeners pointed out a mistake. I'm going to own up to it. So let me explain what happened. In the previous episode, Percy Jones had mentioned the drummer Mike Clark, with whom he had worked for a time in the band Brand X, and also had recommended him to Brian Eno for working in the studio. Now, Mike Clark is probably best known for his work with Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters. If you look up Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters and drummer, Mike Clark will come up. Now, in the haste to get the episode done, and I admit it can be overwhelming sometimes the way this podcast has developed, it's not just a simple conversation, it's really like a radio short story with numerous references, sound clips, etc. So while in the throes of getting that episode together, I overlooked one fact. Before there was Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, there was an album by Herbie Hancock simply called Headhunters. And that's Herbie Hancock's biggest album. And the opening track from that, Chameleon, is the song probably most associated with the term Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. Yet that's not Mike Clark playing the drums. (laughs) In other words, for the band Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, it is Mike Clark. For the album by Herbie Hancock called Headhunters, it's Harvey Mason. And I know I had been aware of this at one time, but it was so long ago, and it slipped my mind. It's a little bit like the fact that Rush's first album does not have Neil Peart on drums. It's John Retzi. And imagine if they were defined by that first album and their biggest song was Working Man from that first album. I suppose they could be forgiven for that mistake. And people have been very understanding, including the first one who pointed it out underscore old man underscore sack underscore s on twitter i'm sorry i don't know your real name and attorney guitar player mark Hanna. and as i speak to you it's early july so just a quick reminder that there are some shows on the east coast at the end of this month with our previous guest the great percy jones on bass yours truly alex Golnick on guitar kenny grahowski on drums and tim motzer on guitars and electronics The first show is July 22nd in Pauling, New York at Daryl's House Club, owned by one Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates. I can't go for that. July 23rd at Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, Kennett Flash Rooftop Series. July 24th in Brooklyn, New York, my hometown, Shapeshifter Lab. That's another musician-owned venue. Fine bass player Matt Garrison, son of the late, great Jimmy Garrison bass player of the John Coltrane Quartet. And July 25th, Sellersville, Pennsylvania, Sellersville Theater, with more shows to be announced in October and December. Uh, Once again, the name of this project is Pact, P-A-K-T, with a self-titled album coming out on July 22nd through Moon June Records. And that's it for now. Let's get back to our conversation with Michael League. How do you decide what to work on every day, right? Because you're, you're working on so many multiple things. And for those of us mm-hmm. who, you know, who try to multitask, <laughs> what, what, do you have any like secrets or recommendations for finding the motivation? How do you know you should work on this project today instead of mm-hmm. the other one? For the record, I'm a horrible multitasker. <laughs> That's so interesting. Reza Bazzi said the same thing. And I'm like, How? he did three records since I... Talk to him last before the pan. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, dude, oh, I'm lazy. I swear. <laughs> like, I need to. Yeah. Be- yeah. <laughs> I feel the same 
way. I mean, I don't know that I'm lazy, but I'm just not good at managing time. And the truth is the main thing that ensures that a lot of things get done mm. is just putting things in my calendar and being terrified of failing. Mm. So like, for okay. example, tonight, when we're done with this, I have another thing I have to do. And then basically all night, I'm going to be making tracks for a session that I'm producing tomorrow, but it's in New York. So I have to send the tracks to the duo, Antonio Sanchez and Pedrito Martinez. And I'm jumping in just for anybody not familiar with those names. Antonio Sanchez is considered one of our most noteworthy drummers, originally from Mexico, known for tons of work, including albums with Pat Metheny and an all-drum soundtrack for a great film, Birdman, with Michael Keaton, that won a lot of awards. And Pedrito Martinez has played with a who's who of artists from the Latin jazz world. He's originally from Cuba, and he's also worked with pop artists, including Bruce Springsteen. And once again, the names are Antonio Sanchez and Pedrito Martinez. We're going to record at the old Avatar. Oh, cool. Power station. Yep. And I'm going to be here on Zoom. But they need certain things to record to. So I'm going to record those tonight. But then also tomorrow, two Spanish guys come to my house to rehearse all weekend. Mm. Some material that I haven't written yet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And some other stuff, too. It's not yeah. only my stuff. But so before they arrive tomorrow night, I have to write that, too. So I'm going to try to write that tonight and in the morning. And, you know, I mean. So you'll be working into the night tonight, basically. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And tomorrow until the session starts, the remote session starts. So do you need a lot of sleep? Historically in my life, very little. But then since the pandemic, uh -huh. and actually a year before that, I read this book called Why We Sleep uh -huh. by Matthew Whitaker. That's incredible. I've heard of it, yeah. It's great. It'll scare the shit okay. out of you. <laughs> It'll make you sleep you know? more. It'll make you sleep more. I changed mm. my habit the day after mm. I started reading it, you know? Wow. But tonight probably won't be a great one, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you but the to. truth is, like, would this stuff get done mm -hmm. if there wasn't somebody arriving on a train at 930 tomorrow night expecting right. to play music that i need to write i wouldn't write it yeah you know like if there's no deadline doesn't get done yeah i totally relate to that are you the same very much i need some kind of commitment i have trouble doing stuff for myself That's if i hardest. have a commitment with somebody else it helps yeah if i'm afraid of letting somebody else down yeah uh, yeah fear yeah yeah great it, it, it can be <laughs> very motivating yeah i'm the same i mean that solo record mm-hmm that I just did. Yes, which we you know, need it's to called, talk about. No, I mean, whatever. But yeah, I mean, the document with all the ideas, lyrical ideas or song title ideas or textural ideas, it's called, you know, Solo Album 2015. Mm -hmm. I just put it off and put it off and put it off. And then there's a global pandemic. All my gigs are canceled. Okay, I'll do it. You know, but I think without the pandemic, there's no way I ever would have recorded that album because there would always be commitments to other people, mm -hmm. fear of letting them down, endless excuses. That's so fascinating. So I don't think anybody would guess... Like, if somebody they just randomly heard one of the Snarky Puppy records, mm -hmm. yeah, say the Ground Up record sure. or, or the first one. I love that stuff, by the way. <laughs> yeah, if I never just, would have expected the guitarist in Testament yeah. to say that to me, but I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, people are Thank surprised. You. I mean, I have a whole life outside of that, but. Oh, of yeah. course. The show's all about, you know, breaking expectations. I love it. Yeah, I really like the one with the dog on the cover. The first one. Yep, that's the first one. Wow. And it's got such cool horn arrangements on it. Oh, thank you. Wow. And, yeah, that was um, the very first one in 20, 2003. Yeah, it, it holds up, though. 
Wow. Yeah. I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I wanted great. to compare it with, yeah, with the immigrants stuff. Sure. And I'm jumping in just to let you know that Immigrants is spelled with a C-E at the end, and it is a recent Snarky Puppy album with more of a global world music feel than some of their very early material that we've been discussing. The palette has expanded yeah, as to what it is. Sure. But even so, so you come out with your solo statement, and it's so different. It's great, by the way. You would think it would fit with that music, but it's completely in its own category. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't really know how similar it is because it's just me. You know how it is. Like, you're the least qualified judge of your own shit. Mm -hmm. So when I finished the record, you know, I sent it to Ground Up, which is our record label. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know if this sucks. I don't know if it's good, but here it is. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? <laughs> what, what did I do? What have I right, done? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What have I done? Yeah. That's a better way. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, as musicians, you know, as well as anybody, like the way you reacted to that comment that I said about the guitars and Testament, you know, you're like, well, yeah, I'm, that's one thing I do, but I'm much more yes. than that. And I think it's the same with every musician. There's very yeah. few musicians actually on earth, I think, that only do the thing that they're known for doing. Yeah. And most of the time, musicians who have had some measure of success spend a lot of their time trying to distract people from the thing that they're successful at yeah. and trying to draw attention to other things. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. I play guitar in this super famous band, but check out this other thing that I did. Or I very rarely listen to instrumental jazz-based groove music, which is what Snarky Puppy does. I like very rarely listen to that. I listen to much more folkloric music from around the world, 80s pop, 90s rock. Mm -hmm you know, everything from the 60s and 70s. It's funny to me that people would think that I'm just this thing that plays bass in a fusion band or whatever, or that you're a guitar player that plays in Testament, you know, but we have other interests and other skills and maybe they just haven't had enough light shown on them for people to think of us that way. Yeah, this is so similar to something I heard the 70s pop singer Ricky Lee Jones say. So good, right? Bomb. And yeah, I love her. She was just on Mark Maron's podcast. Oh, wow. Really? And she said like almost the exact same thing that you just said. And allow me to break in for a moment. Again, there isn't really time to go down any rabbit holes. However, even during that conversation, I was thinking I really should play a clip of Ricky Lee Jones on Mark Maron's podcast. So here's just a minute or so of their conversation, which directly relates to the one we're having. You covered Bad Company by Bad Company, right? Yeah, That's I did. A... <laughs> I did. And, I, and it's funny, like, because that that song, you, you can sing behind the beat on that one. Yeah. That's right. And I guess he was a little bit jazzy himself. I also covered Rebel Rebel acoustically. No, I love that. I like I like to go wherever I want to go. And um, one of the reasons I did Bad Company is because when I would, when I was on, uh, on stage and I'd introduce the song, people would laugh. So I thought, wow, you know, this is so unexpected that Ricky Lee Jones would do Bad Company. I think I'm going to record it. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd like to do a Bad Company. Though. But it's weird because, oh. like, you know, there's a snobbery around certain, you know, bands yes, that I grew up with. I mean, I've got all the Bad Company albums. I'll still listen to some Paul Rogers. He's fucking great. But, you know, like if you don't tell people, they're not the wiser because they don't even know. They don't know bad company from bad company. Yeah. I don't know where it's where the snobbery was going. I guess it's it is snobbery, but it's more that marketing thing where 
That's true. Where That's we've true. been so over marketed to mm. you do this kind of music, they That's do that right. kind of music. Right. And if you blend them, I'm going to be embarrassed. It's like you're naked. Or, or even if you listen to them, like you, you, you yes. people get an idea of a band before they know anything about it. They dismiss it because of how it's branded. Right. Exactly. I felt like I suffered from that a little People are inundated with information, and classification is a way of organizing our world so that we can understand it. It makes sense. Like, this person, oh, you mean yeah. the husband of or the wife of? Oh, that person, they're Spanish, right? You know, yeah. we just immediately, but they're much more than a Spanish person. They're much more than the husband or the wife of, blah, blah, blah. They're much more than a pop singer. You know, everyone is more, but of course, the association thing makes things faster more fluid to communicate. It makes yeah. sense. But in certain moments, I think it can be frustrating for artists because they feel like, okay, you like this song I wrote, but it's one of 90 songs, you yeah. know, or 190 or 590. Yeah. Like check out this other one or whatever. You find that a lot with songwriters. Yeah. And I'm known for these screaming guitar solos, for example. Right. I do not listen to music with screaming guitar solos. For yeah. The <laughs> Completely. Completely. I, yeah, I find that so interesting. And actually, you know, this year, we really made like a conscious effort to, for lack of a better way of saying it, start making people think of me as a producer. Mm -hmm. Like a conscious plan, you know, that pandemic, mm -hmm. no gigs, right? So there's a lot of different things you can do. So I said, like, man, there's like 20 artists that I've talked to about producing records for and that I'd be, love to do it. So why don't I just do one a month? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to start a, an Instagram for the first time, like a personal Instagram that basically just documents the production of these 12 records so that while we're off the road, mm -hmm. I'm developing not only my skills as a producer from doing it over and over again, but also developing a way of the public thinking of me, <laughs> which sounds so weird, but it's true. I mean, people won't call you to produce a record. Like, for example, you want to play in Miles Davis's band mm -hmm. and you're playing like, you know, oh, dun, 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 oh, honey, honey. What is that song? Sugar. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, sugar, oh, honey. Oh, like honey, you're playing honey. that at a, right. You're playing bass on that song at a wedding right. and Miles Davis walks in. He hears you play it. He's probably not going to hire you sure. to play in his band. Sure. Right. Like you have to advertise the mm -hmm. thing that you want to do so that people will call you to do that thing. Mm-hmm. So that's like what this year is devoted to more or less for me is to just say like, hey, I really love producing and I love working with artists from around the world so that in two years when all these records come out, maybe people start calling me more to do that. I don't you think know? you'll have that problem anymore. I mean, just between your own stuff, the secret trio stuff, the stuff with Crosby, which is really cool as well. Thank you. Uh, and you always want more. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> True. You know, you always want... You always want more. I guess, especially as artists or musicians, it's like you never feel like you have enough, which is why we probably keep creating, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess, that you know what, as a listener, I look for references. References can be annoying. I get annoyed with yeah. references when people talk about my music. So I don't 
mean to i hope it's not annoying I think it's more about the way people talk about references right. than the references yeah like if someone goes up to you and is like oh man kirk hammett totally hear oh, him yeah. and you're playing <laughs> exactly. you know that's like a very different way of Funny. giving a reference yes. than like thank you <laughs> uh, you know good one yeah. are, are you a fan of right. these artists or yes. or you know whatever so you know okay so listening to your record like it's not like i thought oh this sounds like a peter gabriel song but there were just moments to name one name cool where i thought okay yeah the sort of world groove Mm. with a really catchy hook on top of it and i don't know about this one seal because i just thought of like the production on those seal records, you know, yeah, that huge. So far, you two for two. Okay, what good. Else you got? All right, maybe I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. Keep going. <laughs> keep going till you give a really till I fail shitty one like Limp Bizkit or something, and then okay. Well, um, <laughs> any conscious influences that you thought of while while doing this, or was yeah. it just yeah? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm a, first off, I'm a firm believer in the idea that no one on this earth can do anything new. I mu- totally musically. Agree. That anything 100%. we're doing, and I, I've been so much better since I accepted yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I wrote a song today with a friend of mine named Hamilton Giolanda. He's an incredible mm. musician from Brazil, and he spent the night last night. We had dinner, or whatever, and then today, before he left, he's like, "Let's write a song." Uh-huh. You know, I was like, well, "Okay, let's write a song." You know, and he said, "Like, let's write a song like this." Uh-huh. So we immediately had this kind of reference and a tempo and a rough style. And the fact that we weren't worried about like, oh, but mm, there are other songs that are kind of like that or blah. You know, you start putting up all these barriers or excuses to basically not move forward. Mm -hmm. But because we were just totally comfortable with this idea of like, it's just a song. It doesn't have to be Beethoven's It can be anything. Let's just do it. And then the individuality and the individual taste and all the things that make a song quote unquote unique, mm-hmm. which God knows if that's possible, but mm-hmm. you know, that make it specific to those people who've written it. That stuff begins to appear in the details. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, mm-hmm. that in the broad scope, you don't get that. But once you start fine tuning, I don't really like this phrase. Mm-hmm. Maybe I give it more space and maybe, ah, this note is actually a little more interesting. This is like really where our individual personalities start to shine in the editing. Mm-hmm. You know, David Sadar says writing is rewriting. Yeah. talking about books. Yeah. But exactly, right? As composers, it's the same. We're constantly editing. My favorite one of his is uh, Me Talk Pretty One Day. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I, yeah. Those books cracked me up. But oh, yeah, he's right. All the good stuff comes later, right? It's like fine tuning a bunch of stuff yes. that's potentially throwaway stuff. Absolutely. And yeah. any crappy idea can become gold mm-hmm. just with like, an interesting decision made with good taste. That's a great quote. You know, mm. that you can bring the saddest song to a great producer or songwriter and they'll hear the potential in it and they'll do five or six little changes and all of a sudden you've got a classic, maybe, you know, depending on the strength and the taste of that person. But so I'm fascinated by this idea. And as you said, writing becomes much more fluid when you stop trying to be so fucking unique all the time. (laughs) You know, when you're not just like, oh, well, I would do this, but I've heard that before. It's 
everything you've done, you've heard that before. Anything that you do that you think you haven't... Right. It comes from somewhere. Yeah. And if you think you found something that's never been done before, it's because you're ignorant to the fact that someone else has done it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, really. So it's like once we start getting into those details and editing, and then I think y you start to see the flower yeah. of individuality kind of blossom. You can always change it, too. You can always you can just all, yeah. recreate it. Make it exactly like the thing exactly to the point where you're afraid of their lawyers, but then change it. Right. <laughs> you know? Totally. So then you have a foundation I, to work with. And I, I've done that a lot in little like workshops about songwriting. Like somebody play me a 10 second clip of anything. Right. Let's go. And they play 10 seconds of a track and we're like, all right, we're stealing this melody, mm. you know, but let's put it in the bass and let's double it, the length of it, you know, so now each note is twice as long and mm. let's change the key so that it sounds better on the instrument and then like within 10 seconds the composer of that song would never recognize that you've totally swiped their melody and used it as a baseline you know what i mean right. it doesn't sound anything like the original song That's a great like within idea. really 10 minutes of work and if you're applying that same tactic to every little element of the composition process well yeah i'm gonna steal this but i'm gonna tweak it in this way and tweak it in this way and tweak it in this way and then you've tweaked 20 things 20 times according to your taste, mm -hmm. then you have your thing. So for me, sorry, an hour ago, you asked me if I was conscious. <laughs> no, that's a really oh, good answer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was totally conscious. I was like, I love that XTC mm -hmm. never has two sections with identical textures. There's always oh, an added right? backing vocal. Mm -hmm. Dude, mm -hmm. listen to every, any XTC song ever recorded. Mm -hmm. The second chorus is different from the first. The third is different from the second. The fourth wow. is different from the third, second, first. There's always an, normally an added. Okay, I'm going to layer or something. I mean, a little formulaic, but in a super beautiful way. Yeah. You know, and a lot of bands have that kind of thing. So I tried to also do that on this record. Like, okay, every section is going to feel different from the previous time that that section occurred. Yeah. Or the Crosby, Stills, and Nash thing of like, maybe there will be songs where every single note in the melody is harmonized. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like melody and then now we have harmonies in this certain section, but like, you think about CSNY. Oh, yeah. CSNY. Massive harmonies. The whole song. Yeah. Literally not a single syllable that's sung in unison. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely stealing concrete things like that. I could hear like some of the vocal concepts from them. I mean, I think everybody oh, yeah. borrows from them i mean i've it's impossible not to i think if you've ever heard them if you ever hear like yes or classic yes i mean that that would not exist if it wasn't for csny CSN. it's really csny Absolutely. with like more chops <laughs> right yeah 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 more prog yeah more prog yeah but i mean yeah totally like hollow notes you know oh, yes. was Love. definitely listening to a lot oh, of hollow notes when i was writing this stuff and, so and transcribing songs mm -hmm. and being mm -hmm. like oh okay modulation here like I did that actually on one of the songs, there's a song called Fireside mm -hmm. on the record where I was really inspired by that all notes song. I can't go for that. Yeah. No can't can go, do. You know? No can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, wow, they're modulating, but you don't really feel the modulation in a big way because they're modulating by like a fourth wow. or a fifth it's or so... something. So that song modulates by a fifth. It's such a great distance of modulation that actually you don't feel it as strongly as if it were a half step. That's so brilliant. You know, yeah, I mean, they're brilliant. So it's shit, I'll steal it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and then you change it and you create your own lyrics and your own story and your own melody. And in the end, the only thing that you've stolen is an idea that everybody right. uses in a different way. A and, seed you've sort of. Right. 
exactly. planted something else. And I'm jumping in again. I almost hate to do so. I'm really enjoying listening back to this conversation. Hopefully you're enjoying it as well. It's reminding me of an episode of Tim Ferriss's podcast where he interviews highly achieving individuals and shares their tools and techniques. And the song that Michael mentioned is from his new album, So Many Me. You heard it before. It's actually one of my favorites on his album. It's track 10, Fireside, and it was in the beginning of the episode. Now, the song starts with the chorus, but I want to play a little bit of it from the verse going into the next chorus. And if you're not sure what I mean by the chorus, in this song, it's pretty clear. He says the title of the song, Fireside. And listen to how he gets there from the song's verse, then listen to how he gets back to the verse from the chorus. And keep in mind what he was saying moments ago about modulation, which is a fancy term we musicians use to describe the changing of the key within a song. Oh, one more thing to listen for. You might not realize it at first because the song grooves so hard, but there is no drum kit. The beat is created entirely with a collection of handheld individual multicultural instruments such as the Middle Eastern Darbuka, all played by Michael. Check it out. Really funny example of this in Snarky Puppies, mm -hmm. I wrote a song called Thing of Gold for the record Ground Up. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it in 20 minutes in my friend Bill Lawrence's house. He lives in London. And he was cooking dinner and I was writing it on his piano. And I finished and I said, man, this song just came out of me. Like, you want to check it out? He said, sure. He sat down. I played it for him. I had lyrics. Huh. And he's like, man, we should play that in Snarky Puppy. I love it, you know? And I was like, no, I... So it's a lyric song. I'll give it to a singer. Uh -huh. And he talked me into playing it. So we play it. We record it. Bill's on the recording. He's played the song hundreds of times. Five years later, I'm listening to a record that Bill made mm -hmm. of songs he wrote, a record that never came out. And the verse, The Thing of Gold, is on that song. That. I'm playing bass uh -huh. on that record. I stole his verse, <laughs> wrote it in his house, right. played it for him. We recorded it. We played it for years on tour, and he never recognized that that verse <laughs> was actually his. <laughs> wow. And so, I, I mean, That's it's awesome. not identical, but it's very close. And so, I was like, man, I'm so sorry. He's like, dude, I didn't even notice that you shafted that from me. Wow. You know, so we did like a little exchange where there was another song. I wrote a melody for him and I said, you just keep all the songwriting credit. I'll keep, you know, but yeah, super funny that sometimes we don't even recognize when someone's stolen our own stuff because it's just all out there. Yeah, ether, right? yeah. It's like, 
you can tell when someone is really consciously trying to jack something in a, in a malevolent way. Oh yeah. And yeah. in a lazy way rather than when something just comes out subconsciously. Yeah. It know? can, it can be too obvious, but I think like the type of thing you're talking about, everybody does it, whether they even yeah. realize it or not. And I don't think it's a bad thing as long as you do those last 20 steps of the process. Yeah. Like step one is stealing. Uh-huh. <laughs> is like taking the idea and basing your idea off of it. But then there's like 19 more steps or whatever yeah. in the process of editing it, changing it to really make it your own thing. And if yeah. you're lazy and you don't want to do that, then you end up with songs that end up going to court. Right, right. Which happens often. As we've seen, yeah. Well, the Marvin Gaye one, I mean, Oof. that was pretty... Egregious. Agree. <laughs> that was kind of undeniable. I feel like the Zeppelin one... That's such a common chord progression that it was built off of. And even if he had first heard it from the support act, you know, spirit, I think that what they did with it was so different. And it went places that the other song did not go. So. Told, uh, yeah, I mean, this sounds. I think that was decided so... well, right? That was in Led Zeppelin's yeah. favor. So. Yeah. And this maybe isn't the most tactful thing to say, but there's a yeah. part of me. That feels There's like no tact here on this show. Good. Thank you. <laughs> I fit right in then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a part of me, I wouldn't argue this on social media or something or in a court of law, but uh-huh. there's a part of me that says like, if you steal someone's idea and your shit is way cooler, go have it. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's yours, you know, like that song that they shafted from spirit right. is not as cool as Stairway to Heaven. Like That's objectively, right. it's right. not as cool. So just That's, let it. That should be the law. Be, that should be, it should be like, the law. There should be I mean, a coolness judge. Right? Yeah, exactly. The pro- That's the problem. How do you find right. proper arbitrator for that? I shouldn't have said that. Probably. No, that's great. <laughs> this is fun. Um, we're just over the hour point, but we're not done yet. There is more of this conversation. And frankly, it's too good not to share. So we'll do a couple more segments. Next, we'll talk about Michael leaving the big city for a quiet region of Spain. And appropriately enough, here is a song he wrote with David Crosby, whose voice you may recognize, a song called The City. I first saw her as a child on a movie screen I felt my heart jump out of my chest She was damaged and lean with a character But you fought it to, to the test Beauty by day Danger by night, ain't it a bitch to see? But the only city I could ever really love takes the time to step on people like me. You're in Spain. You're from Virginia, as you mentioned, and you were yeah. based in in my neighborhood, basically in yeah. Brooklyn. Exactly in your neighborhood. So Spain, how long have you been there? Is this like a long-term thing? And how does it affect your creative process? Well, I've been visiting for eight years. Mm-hmm. This little tiny village which has about 500 people in it nice. in northeastern Spain in Catalonia. Mm, beautiful. And yeah, like two and a half years ago or three years ago, a house went up for sale. And I've been staying in this little village in between tours. Mm. And I was just like, you know what? I feel good here. I'm a workaholic. I have a lot of energy. New York maybe isn't the best long-term living place for me because it feeds those things in ways that maybe aren't necessarily super healthy. You don't need to be in New York for that 
to happen in a way. No, I have natural energy and work addiction. Yes. For sure. Like without being in a place that encourages both of us. Yeah. I think some of us need it. You know, I, I grew up on the West Coast. I'm from Long Beach, actually. Oh, is that right? Long Beach. But I mean, I moved when I was like seven. Okay. I was born in Long Beach. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you grow up there, you it seems like such a destination and people can't imagine living anywhere else. People I know who never left think we're crazy. In my case, I like to be in New York. I need that stimulation. It helps. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. It helps offset that West Coast. The, the veg. Mode. Exactly. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm the opposite. Yeah. I had to come here. So you had to escape from New York. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Kurt Russell vibes. Yeah. I mean, I had to basically <laughs> yeah. insert life into my life uh -huh. because there wasn't any. I mean, I loved my life in New York, mm -hmm. but it was very obvious, recognized, like, I was totally impossible to have a relationship with. Mm -hmm. Also, just like simple things like sitting down and having dinner for a couple hours, like never happened right. in 11 years. You were just like working like here, nonstop. It's like, yeah, I mean, the culture in this country is really like two to three hour dinners. And only 45 minutes of it is eating. The rest of it's just right. sitting at Chilling. the table talking. That's so cool. You realized that and that you needed that. Yeah, well, I didn't realize it until I had done it a bunch. And then I was like, why do I feel so good? Why am I you know, hmm. happy in different ways. And then also it just made sense. I study in Istanbul and I study in Morocco. So mm. I'm two and a half hours on a plane to Turkey. I'm an hour and a half to Tangier. Oh, so you're um, studying instruments? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So That's I'm close to my teachers. That's, That's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. I'm 45 minutes to an airport. I live in the middle of nowhere. Food wow. and wine and everything is super cheap. Oh, That's amazing. Yeah. You know, I have a studio in my house. So it's like I can invite people I want to produce here and not worry about an $1,800 a day studio tab at a New York studio wow. in the budget. You know, I mean, it's fantastic. So for me, it's checking all the boxes. And just a quick thought on that last segment. How refreshing is it to meet an all-American born and raised in the USA who has relocated to Spain and taking regular trips to Morocco and Turkey to study with world-class percussionists? What a way to defy the stereotype of the American who is rarely leaving our borders, if ever, and has little knowledge of other cultures and countries. So on that note, let's hear a little bit of Bocante. This will be our final musical clip before our last interview segment. The description on iTunes reads, Bocante is a band project founded by Snarky Puppies' Michael League. He describes the sound of multicultural, multilingual, and multigenerational Bocante as Quote, a weird combination of West African music, Delta Blues, Led Zeppelin, and Caribbean Kawaja, if I'm saying that right. It is an eight-piece ensemble fronted by trilingual vocalist Malika Tiroyon. I believe I'm saying that right, as she sings in French and Creole. And the title of the song is Nutu Seon. That is four words. And I have to warn you, you may not be able to sit still. <laughs> Sous-titrage 
I'm sure you're familiar with Rodrigo y Gabriela. Yeah, actually, they just covered a song I Did wrote you know that? I was going to ask if you were aware of that. Yeah, they just covered Yeah, actually, I got to record bass for them tonight. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, for a version they're doing with, with bass. I have to do that tonight. Yeah. Oh, super tomorrow. cool. They're great yeah. friends. They're so, so cool. I guested on their record, 1111. Oh, um, yeah. Congrats. Didn't that win a Grammy? It was the one before oh, okay. the Grammy winner. You set it up. Exactly. I put that in motion. I made, <laughs> I made that happen. So I've gone to visit them. They're in uh, Ixtapa, Mexico. Oh. And it's a very similar vibe. It's super mellow, just, right? It's mellow. It's away from everything. It's tropical. Yeah, there are long dinners and things like that. So it's very yeah. relatable. I love it. Yeah. I mean, basically, I just had this moment where I was like, the rhythm of the city is so strong that I could totally see myself waking up as a 75-year-old guy and going like, whoa, what happened to the last 50 years? Yeah, yeah. You know, like just had the desire to really like hit the brakes in some ways. But the truth is you asked how is it impacting my creativity and efficiency and stuff. And the truth is I've been more prolific here in every way, I think, since I moved. This year I'm producing 12 records. You know, I'm already awesome. five in, I think. We're in May, so those are already done. I've written more music than I ever have in my life. You know, the whole ease of just like, I'm in my sweatpants, uh-huh. you know, and right. I've gotten a lot of things done today without putting on shoes. Yeah. That's, you know, a total bonus because you know very well mm-hmm. that in New York, most of your time is in transit. Yeah. You spend a lot so, of time on trains and taxis, all this stuff and not having to do that is. So you, you're is, able to cut that out. You're able to just. Uh, right do it but in you know feel relaxed while you're doing yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. And just that everything's centralized at the studio. It's here so I can track for people without having to go to a studio, book a studio, all this kind of stuff, which is nice, but you know, I, I have to say that New York is the best place in the world for the music that we make. Yeah. For the kinds of music that you and I make respectively, you know, I mean, it's incredible. And I miss them. There there is nothing like putting in time here, for sure. Completely. And I owe New York for the success that Snarky Bubby has because we were trying to make it happen from Texas and uh-huh. nothing started happening until I moved to New York. Yeah. You know, I mean, the truth is when the world goes back to right. being the world we knew, I'm not going to be here much. Yeah, I'll you'll be, be traveling a lot. Yeah, four months a year, tops. I'll yeah. be in this house. You know, so it's been great this year to be able to enjoy it. Yeah. But when, when things go back, I'll be on planes. Yeah. Trains and automobiles. And... This would be like a little refuge. Such a great idea. Oh, cool. That's one thing I didn't screw up in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing just fine. I'll mark it as a win. I'm glad you feel that way, Alex. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. I know uh, you, you have like a dozen albums to produce, so or oh. whatever, yeah, <laughs> whatever it is you're doing. A today, dozen albums so. to procrastinate. <laughs> producing. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I'm so glad we could do this because this is like great to hear your ideas and your process and. Oh, thanks. I'm super hello. flattered you invited me. This was my pandemic project, was this podcast. Oh, and I, okay. I thought about doing it for a long time. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Is there thank anything you. else you wanted, to, you wanted to hit? I think that's about it. Maybe just real quick, business-wise, Yeah. you and, and Rodrigo remind me of each other in a way. Because, Is that right? Yeah. Well, he's, he's a little more intense about it than you, but- both of you guys managed. You don't know how fucking intense I am. That's man. true. <laughs> there, there it is. I knew I could get it out. 
No, the what you both did was you were able to take unlikely to succeed projects and let people know they needed them, even though they fit these categories. When I say unlikely to succeed, I mean not in the sense that they're not good, they're not very good, but oh, dude, it's like we're instrumental <laughs> jazz. You can relate it to fusion, right? That right at one time that was so taboo. Rod and Gabby, yeah, we're two acoustic guitar players. Buskers. It's like we're buskers. Yeah. So just any thoughts on breaking that barrier of like the business and expectations and making people realize, hey, yeah, yeah, and, and getting people to get it. They they get it now. But yeah. I mean, I am a firm believer in the idea that you can have a complete turd and make people want to buy it. How? You know, I'm well, I think people take different routes. Uh-huh. I think if you know that you have a turd then you're going to take a different route yeah. than a person that believes that they don't have a turd. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Even if they yeah. still yeah. have a turd. This is a horrible no, analogy to work with, but I think th- I ju- there's people who d- they must know. They must know that. Yeah. That I'm sure there are people that are just like, man, I don't no. actually I know people who are like, look, this is what I love. Yeah. And this is what I don't love, but I know that I can have a lot of success with, so I'm just gonna do this, you know? Definitely not the route I took. Yeah. Each their own, I you know? know? Yeah, I've, I've seen people. I'm sure you know yeah. people are the same. I think there's a lot of different routes. I can only speak for the second. Well, I don't want to say that I have a turd. <laughs> but I, I, you don't have I, can only, I can only speak for the kind of person who believes deeply in what they're doing and yeah. makes making that sustainable a priority uh-huh. versus trying to create a thing that you assume that other people want, which right. I think is already a false premise or false pretense like doesn't seem like a great idea the truth is you don't know what people want you know and i think people are more attracted to belief Mm -hmm. than they are to the actual product like if you see someone who really believes in Mm themselves for me that's always the x factor you know Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't wake up in the morning listening to beyonce but when i watch beyonce playing live i believe every word right you know you definitely she no question she believes and that pushes her from artist, entertainer, musician, Mm -hmm. to like superhero. Mm -hmm. And you feel that from her fan base, that they look at her and treat her that way for a variety of reasons. Also her intelligence and Mm -hmm. her, you know, commitment to movements and ideals and and all that kind of stuff. But also when you see Hendrix, it's the same. There's the belief. Yeah. There's the belief that just provides that X factor. And I think we all have moments of doubt. We all have imposter syndrome if we have the luxury of having some kind of success. But Snarky Puppy was successless for a very significant amount of time, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years, basically, with no measurable degree of success, just very, very slow organic growth, but still sleeping on floors or sharing hotel beds, you right. know, with a sweaty dude. And But I think we just believed, not that our music was great, not that we just believed in what we were doing, that we had a family, that we all loved music, that we all respected each other, that every day we're trying to get better, evolve, that there were songs that had something in them that was worth believing in and that the players had something in them was worth believing in. So I think in a word, it would just be belief. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're not going to lose that either because it's built up. It's a solid it's foundation. In. Yeah. It's I not, mean, I would also. Yeah. It's not like a fly by night hit. Sorry. Like, like it's not right. Gangnam style. And I'm sorry. Totally. Sigh. I'm sorry, guy. You know, but <laughs> right, you know, exactly. that's an example of that. Sorry. You can't keep that. And that's getting so big so fast. Yep. And slow growth is growth to be trusted. Mm -hmm. You know, it's organic. 
It's sustainable. You have to lose fans slowly if you gain them slowly. And I think if you become successful overnight, Watch it's out. a lot of pressure. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't trust it. Fortunately, I've never experienced that. Yeah. <laughs> so I've never had to trust it. Um, I only know how to grow things excruciatingly slowly. And then also, oh, yeah, you know, tens of thousands of hours of hard work and perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. And looking at horrible situations in the face and trying to turn them into opportunities, unexpected opportunities. That's great. You know, and a lot of other stuff about respect, about the way you treat the people around you and about, you know, so as true. a band leader being more of a servant mm -hmm. than a diva and, you know, stuff, I guess people could write books about because it's so deep, but absolutely so much. But yeah, in a small nutshell, that's what I would say. That's so great. That's so great to hear. Yeah, I think it's important. Positivity. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a mood. Yeah, it's really like and it's a, working. Like I mean, you a, have something essential life skill. Yeah, I love real life examples. Like, mm. you know. Oh well, there's plenty of those. One time we, I'll just give you a short one. That sure. one time we, we did a tour with Ari Honig's trio. This incredible, uh, incredible drummer. Yeah. Drummer. You yeah. Know. I know our and yeah. good friend of everybody in the band. Yeah, such, you know him. He's a Brooklyner and such a great player. We did this tour and a lot of things happened on this tour, mm -hmm. but it was not a fruitful tour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Other than just having a great time. Like financially it was ter you know, three people in the audience to see both bands combined, you know. Mm -hmm. We get back, everybody had parked their cars in front of my house in Dallas, mm -hmm. six or seven cars from band members. We went gone for two and a half weeks. We came back. All the cars were gone. So, you know, someone had called the tow truck and said, like, these cars aren't ours. So they, you know, knocked on my door because it was totally legal for those cars to park there as long as they're guests of someone living on the street. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't around. I was on tour with them. So these cars were in the in impound lot. Impounded, yeah. For 10 days, mm -hmm. collecting 200 bucks a day per car. And it just broke my last credit card, I think, coming back from this tour of losing money. And then, you know, here's however many thousands of dollars. like Thousands, yeah. Yeah, it was thousands, yeah. And it was one of those moments of like, do we just hang this up? Playing in Tulsa, Oklahoma for three people with the flu. And then you come back and your car, you know, has been towed. For... But we just, we didn't quit failing. You know what I mean? We just kept on failing, you know? Yeah. And then at a certain point, the failure became like kind of like survival and then kind of moderate success. And now we're in good shape. So, wow. So, you, know. you just bailed out everybody's cars and kept going. Yeah, yeah. It was rough. Not a good day. Yeah. Because somebody else might have said, you know what? <laughs> Not my problem. We, <laughs> there's no profit, guys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, one of a million moments where it would have been logical and prudent to quit. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's so motivating to hear that. Oh, and, cool. And <laughs> yeah, and it's cool, be nice to people. It's like not that hard. Yeah. It's not rocket science. Yeah. And you have control over it. Yeah. Like I can't become a better bass player, exponentially better bass player today, but I can probably stop being an asshole right you know or i can start being prepared for things like you know there's certain things you can do 
right now that you have control over that aren't like becoming the greatest guitar player in the world. You know, you don't have control over that so much. Right, right. But anyway, whatever. Anyway, really thanks, good, man. man. Thank you. I hope to meet up out in the world somewhere. Yeah, what a pity that we had to be 10,000 miles away <laughs> you to know, talk, even though we're living on the same street. Things happen the way they happen. And I, th I have a feeling at that time, we probably both weren't around very much. Probably cause... not. Yeah. Yeah. Now everyone's around all the time. Yeah. Well, if you're ever, even in this part of the world, not necessarily even in Spain, but Portugal or France, whatever, holler at me and I'll do the same when I'm in. I will. I will. I had a... I had two days off in Barcelona before all, all this, but hit me up the next time. That happens. Will do dude. This was so great. So thanks Alex. I appreciate you having me. To meet you. Love the new stuff. Okay. You do. All right, have a good thanks. rest of the day. I'll tell you. You too. Bye. Bye. Wow. I'm sure you could see why we needed to go a little over this time. Too much great stuff not to share. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Michael. I sure did. I found him to be philosophical but funny, does not take himself too seriously, yet is doing some seriously great music at a daggeringly prolific rate. And I'd imagine his collaborators, whether his age and younger or longtime music vets like Crosby, probably often feel the way I'm feeling right now, which is more creative and ready to write more songs. <laughs> so thank you, Michael Leake. Thank you, Jamie Margulies from Ground Up Records, who put this together and has been great to get to know. Thank you, Eric Lenz from Ground Up Records. Thank you, Felicity Hall, a UK and Europe touring production manager we have in common who helped get this ball rolling. And thank you, listeners. As I speak, it's just after midnight, July 7th. The very first Moods and Modes dropped on July 8th, 2020. So happy anniversary. <laughs> Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media. For this episode, all the music played was by Snarky Puppy, Michael League, or Michael-related projects, courtesy of Ground Up Records. This outro music is the Alex Skolnick Trio with Matt Zabrowski on drums, Nathan Peck on the bass, opening theme music by yours truly. As always, extra special thanks to our Patreon members at patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. Thank you once again. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you on the next episode. Osiris. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, 
Happy reading. reading.